Numbers chapter 21, verse 4 says this, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of Israel died. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So a few years ago, I discovered this place near Rochester that's called Owl Woods. The reason it's called Owl Woods is because uh, during the spring and fall, during migration, uh, there are a number of different types of owls that like to stop in this particular location. Uh, so it's right located on Lake Ontario, almost to Rochester, and so they just kind of stop there on their way to wherever they breed. Uh, so there's a number of different kinds of owls that you can see. So a few years ago, I really wanted to see what was called the northern sawwet owl. It's a little tiny owl, really cute, never seen one before. So uh, I have this app that tells me, you know, if any, anybody sees these owls or sees birds. Uh, so I saw that people had seen them that particular week. So I went up there. It's about an hour and a half each way. Looked around for quite some time, couldn't find anything. Completely wasted trip. But I wasn't deterred. I was going to try again. So the next time, or I don't know if I went two or three times, but the, next, the, the one time I went, uh, Stephanie was going to go with me. And so we drive up there, again, hour and a half each way, and we start looking around, and then I see some other people there who are also looking for owls, and we started talking to them. It's like, hey, have you seen the owl? And they kind of described the location uh, where this owl was, where they had seen one. So we go over there and look, and we find the owl. Actually, Stephanie was the one that find, found the owl. She'll never let me live that one down. So we see the owl, and I'm on the top of, top of the world. You know, I get my camera out, and I'm, you know, just taking picture after picture after picture, doing, you know, different angles and the lighting, and I'm just, you know, ecstatic. And I was surprised by Stephanie's reaction. She went over, looked at it, and was like, oh, that's cool. And then she went over and sat on a bench while I stood there for like a half hour photographing this bird. See, I valued birding, looking for these birds, but Stephanie was just going because she wanted to be with me. And what we value determines who or what we chase after. What we value determines who or what we chase after. Uh, A few years ago, several years ago now, 2012, Uh, Superstorm Sandy, uh, or Hurricane Sandy, however you call it, uh, hit the northeastern United States. It was only a Category 2 hurricane, but it was the largest hurricane ever to hit uh, the northeastern Atlantic hurricane to hit the northeastern United States. So it was about 1,100 miles long, um, and it just basically shut down New York City. Virtually everything was closed except for one Starbucks in Times Square. 
And this Starbucks became kind of the meeting ground for anyone who was fanatical about Starbucks. And so you had people who were uh, fighting high winds, dangerous rains, warnings from authority to get to Starbucks. Uh, one lady named Bethany Owens walked 10 blocks with her one-year-old daughter for a fix. She said, I saw on Facebook that they were open, and she said, it was scary not having Starbucks. Her neighbor and friend, Chris Hernandez, came along and later said, when she said they were open, I was like, pack the baby up, let's go. I didn't know they were all going to close. I started panicking. There's nothing else I would have gone out for. This makes my day complete. Another man named Alex Mwangi walked more than 20 blocks looking for an open Starbucks. He told reporters it took a half hour, but I'm a Starbucks fanatic. I go four or five times a day. A man named David Lowe said he went to three closed Starbucks before learning that this store was open. He said, I'm really happy these guys are open. I can't get a pumpkin spice latte anywhere else. The 10-minute wait was worth it. What we value determines who or what we chase after. 2014, a man named Chris Borland achieved a dream that millions of young men ascribe to, to play in the NFL and to be drafted in the first round of the NFL draft. So he was drafted first round of the NFL draft, and then in 2015 he played, uh, I think he played for the Chargers, I'm not sure exactly what team he played for, uh, but he had a really great season. He started a number of games, had this really promising career, but at the end of the year, despite the fact that he was living uh, so many kids' dreams, despite the fact that he was making six figures, he decided to retire after his first year. He cited the effects, potential effects of concussions along with other interests he had in spending time with his family and pursuing other interests. He said, I think I'd have to take on some risks that as a person I don't want to take on. So he's willing to leave that career, that dream, for what was truly important to him. What we value determines who or what we chase after. June 2017, there's a 33-year-old man named Alex Honold who scaled El Capitan. El Capitan is known throughout the world as perhaps the most difficult rock climb in the world. It's 3,000 feet high, and Alex Honold did something that nobody else had ever done. He decided he was going to climb it free solo, which means that he was going to use no ropes, no harnesses, uh, no straps of any kind. He was just going to climb up uh, that rock, you know, just as he was. And at one point, he was literally dangling by his thumbs from a rock a thousand feet above the, above the ground. He's devoted to his career or his hobby, however you put it. He lives most of the year out of his van, a lifestyle known as dirtbagging. He calls it an intentional choice to prioritize your vocation. He says, I want to climb in the best places in the world, and that's my focus. So I'm willing to give up having stability, having a shower, having whatever in order to climb the way I want to. He goes on to say, I'm probably more intentional with the way I live than virtually anybody. I've made clear choices about what I value, what risks I'm willing to take. I'm doing exactly what I love to do. It's very easy for someone sitting on the couch at home to condemn it as crazy or stupid, but I can justify all my choices. He says, can you say the same thing about your life? What we value determines who or what we chase after. 
In the passage that we're looking at today, we see clearly what the people of Israel value, and that's not following after God. It's following after their own desires. We're back at the same place. We've been in numbers for quite some time, and it seems like every week we're dealing with the same topic in a different form. The Israelites, again, they're complaining. They're grumbling against Moses, grumbling against God. Uh, this time they're complaining because they had asked, the Israelites had asked the, kingdom of, the king of Edom if they could pass through their land, and the king of Edom said, no, you can't do it. And so they had to go around the land of Edom, and it says in the text that they became impatient on the way. And so they cry out to Moses once again, and they say, for there is no food and water, and we loathe this worthless food. Notice what is happening here. They say, we have food, we have water, but it's not the food and water that we want. And they describe the food that they have as worthless. Now, what is this food that they have? Uh, we, can't, we don't know for sure, but most likely it was the manna, the bread that came down from heaven that they're talking about. And so what they're doing here is they're calling the bread, the provision of God, something worthless. We don't have any food. We don't have any water. All we have is what God has provided for us, and that is worthless. And I think that really gets to the core of what sin is. Sin is not seeing God's person and God's provisions as valuable. Sin is not seeing God's persons and God's person and God's provisions as valuable. And then the opposite of that, the positive of that, is faith involves delighting in God's person and delighting in God's provision. And we see this throughout Israel's history. We see this throughout humanity's history, even back to the Garden of Eden. Remember God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, gave them all of these uh, trees to eat from, said you can eat from any of these trees except for this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then the serpent comes and tempts Eve and says, hey, God is keeping something from you. God is trying to prevent you from the good life. God is going to hide this from you. He knows if you eat from this tree, you're going to have the knowledge of good and evil. You're going to have this incredible wisdom. You're going to be like God. Do you know what the serpent is doing? He's questioning the character of God, the person of God. And so Adam and Eve make that choice to eat from this, the fruit of the tree. And what they're doing, in essence, is they're saying the person of God is not that valuable. God is not that good. But they're also rejecting the provisions of God. They could eat from any tree in the Garden of Eden, but they had to have this one. They had to have the tree, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, God's provisions is not, are not enough. It's not enough that I have all these other trees. I have to have this one tree that God has forbidden me to eat. They don't see the person of God or the provision of God as valuable. And we see this played out practically as well. Why does a person steal? They steal because they believe that the provisions of God are not enough. Why does a person turn to sexual sin, whether adultery, pornography, homosexuality, whatever the case may be? It's because of a belief that what God has provided, whether through singleness or through marriage, is not enough. God's provision is not enough. Why do we turn to addictions? Oftentimes we turn to addictions because it's, I'm not content with my circumstances. The provisions of God, the person of God, is not enough for me. Why do we complain? We complain because the provisions of God in our mind are not enough for us. Sin is not seeing God's person and God's provisions as valuable. And when we don't see God's provisions and God's 
person is valuable, we'll chase after whatever we find to be valuable, whatever that thing may be. And so we'll follow after that because what we value determines what or whom we chase after. And here's the thing that's interesting about this passage. Our circumstances often do not change our values. You would think that they would, but oftentimes they do not. See, in this passage, just before the passage that we read, uh, the uh, Canaanite king of Arad had attacked the Israelites. They, ha- they weren't really looking for a fight, but the king had attacked them and took some of the Israelites as captive. And so then they cry out to God and they say, hey, we're, we'll make this vow to you. We'll obey you if you just deliver us. And then God answers their prayer and God delivers them, gives them the victory in a miraculous, powerful way. And you would think after that, after they experienced that victory, that favor from God, you'd think that they would change a little bit. You'd think they'd do a little less complaining. They'd have a little bit more gratitude, but they go right back to their old ways. Nothing has changed. We're going to look a few minutes at this bronze serpent that Moses constructs, that God tells Moses to construct, but Uh, What's interesting about that is that God provides this provision for the people to be healed. But later generations of Israelites are also going to misuse this. During the time of Hezekiah, before Hezekiah came into power, the people took this uh, serpent, this staff, uh, the serpent on the pole, put that in the temple, and they actually bowed down and worshipped it. Something that God had provided they used as an idol. Uh, We see it happening in the New Testament as well. In John chapter 6, John describes the feeding of the 5,000 and how God, uh, Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fish and did this incredible miracle. And then after that, the people of Israel, or the the Jews, are seeking after Jesus and they're following Jesus to the other side of the lake. And then they find Jesus. And you think it would be because, hey, we realize this guy's got some power. This person, this Jesus is the Son of God. But Jesus says it's not because of those things. He's, they're seeking after him because they want a free meal. Look at what Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 26. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Circumstances didn't change their heart. Then you see all these other miracles in the gospel, and again, people by and large are not changed. These miracles occur, and then people are like, hey, uh, Jesus, he's demon-possessed. Jesus does other miracles. He heals people, and then they're like, hey, he's breaking the the Sabbath laws. He raises from the dead, and the people say, hey, the disciples came and stole away his body. Circumstances often don't change our hearts unless... God uses those circumstances. God is the only one who can change our hearts. He's the only thing that can change. He's the only one who can change what we value. So what we value is usually not changed by our circumstances, and what we value determines who or what we chase after. And God's answer to sin is often judgment, discipline, and, and finally grace. But God's answer is judgment because uh, valuing things, created things other than God, is an affront to God's character. And it's an affront to the relationship with God. Romans 1, 21-23 says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. 
but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So on my wedding day, my wife gave me this ring. And uh, this ring is one of my most prized possessions. And the reason it's one of my most prized possessions is not because it's valuable, although it does have some value. It's not because of the way it looks, although I like the way that it looks. It's because of the fact that it represents our love for one another, represents the covenant that we made before God. But imagine that after we were married, I I was given this ring, and then I pulled kind of a full-out golem from Lord of the Rings, and it's like, oh, my precious. It's like, oh, I love you. I love you so much. I mean, that would be really weird and creepy, right? Because the ring is not more important than the relationship. The ring simply points to the relationship. And I think that we do something, we can do something similar when we elevate the created thing over the creator. All of the gifts that God gives us, all of this created world is meant to point to him. And when we make any other thing our idol, our focus, it's an affront to God. Because God is the only one who's worthy of our praise. And all of these things we experience in this life are meant to point us to our relationship with God. So God often brings judgment as, uh, on sin because it's an affront to God when we value created things rather than Christ, rather than our relationship with God. He also brings discipline, even discipline to us as believers. And he brings discipline because he wants to, us to realize that sin is not as great as we think it is. I mean, we think sometimes, sometimes people think, hey, God makes all of these rules to keep us from what we really want. He wants to kind of squelch our fun. But God doesn't do that. He disciplines us to show us where we might find true and lasting joy. He wants us to realize that sin lies that Christ is truly more valuable than sin, that living in a relationship with God truly is the good life. The psalmist in Psalm 1, 4 says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked will perish. God wants us to realize that a relationship with him will bring us joy. A joy that sin can't deliver on. Sin often looks good. It looks good on the surface, but when we partake of that and we get, sometimes it takes us a while to get down the road of that path of sin, we realize it's not as good as we thought it was. So in New York City, there's about 8 million cats, about 11 million dogs. And if you've ever been to New York City, it's almost all concrete and steel. There's very little grass. So what do you do when your animal passes away? It's not like you can go in the backyard and bury them. So what do you do? So the city came up with this plan that they were going to charge $50 that that people could bring their animals to have them cremated when they passed away. So this lady got this idea 
that she was going to charge half of that. And she was going to kind of come up with this little uh, way to make money. And so what she did was she went to the thrift store and she would buy a suitcase for a couple dollars. And so she would take this uh, carcass of this pet and put it in the suitcase. And then she would go on the subway and she would leave the the, the suitcase on the ground. And then she would kind of walk away a little bit, pretend like she wasn't watching, wait for a thief to come up and grab the suitcase. Then when the thief came up and grabbed the suitcase, she'd be like, wait, stop, thief. And of course, the thief wouldn't stop. He'd keep running away, thinking that he had something valuable until he got home and realized that he stole the carcass of an animal. And I think that's kind of what sin is like. It might look good on the surface. We think that we're getting something valuable, but it's never what we're really looking for. So God brings judgment or discipline on the people of Israel. He sends these fiery serpents among them. Uh, Sounds a little bit scary to me. I don't know exactly what these fiery serpents meant. Oftentimes when they talked about, uh, gave adjectives to snakes like this, uh, it would be kind of because of the effects that they had. So when they were talking about fiery serpents, it may have been because of the inflammation and redness that their bites caused. Uh, So It's a kind of terrifying scene as God sends these serpents among them. And the people realize there's an issue here. We've got a problem. And they call out to God and they repent and say, hey, God, we need, or they tell Moses, pray to God that he would intercede and that these snakes would leave us. And then God responds in grace, even in the midst of this judgment and discipline, and God shows them grace. And notice what the grace is. Notice God doesn't say, it doesn't take the snakes away. He doesn't take the snakes away. Notice he doesn't prevent the people from being bit by the snakes. He doesn't show that grace. Rather, he gives them the grace that if they're bit by the snakes, they could be healed, that the venom of the snake would not overtake them. The Lord instructed Moses to put a snake on the pole, bronze or copper. We're not sure exactly what it was, a bronze or copper snake. Put it on a pole, and then anyone who would look at this snake... If they had been bit by the snake, would experience healing. And I think this is a picture, and Jesus talks about this picture in the Gospels. Uh, I think it's a picture of our human condition. And as human beings, our hope is not avoiding being bit by the snake. We've all been bit by the snake. The great serpent and deceiver of our souls has deceived each and every one of us. And we're all snake bit. The serpent has deceived each and every one of us. We follow after, we chase after what we value, and often what we value has taken us away from God. That's the case for all of us. And yet the hope of the gospel is described by Jesus in John chapter 3. Jesus says this in John chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Just as the Israelites looked to that snake on the pole, anyone who would look to Christ could experience healing and hope and restoration. And I think what God does in this passage and in Christ is that he gives humanity a second chance. He's like, yeah, I know that you found delight in other things. I know that your values have led you astray from me. As Isaiah 53 says, that we all are like sheep. We've all gone astray. I know you've gone astray, but you can look to me and find healing. You can look to me and find restoration. And when we look to God's provision in the cross, it changes our hearts. See, the color of the snake 
red uh, for the copper or the bronze suggests atonement, that in order for uh, the people to be healed, in order for grace to happen, there had to be a payment for sins. And that payment had to be put on full display, and that points to Jesus in the cross, where Jesus became sin for us. He was treated as the serpent, treated as an evildoer so that we might experience life. And if we want to find delight in God, if we're having trouble in that regard, we need to look no further than the cross, because in the cross, we see the value of God, the value of Christ. The cross is the radiance of God's glory. The cross is the place where we see the perfect justice of God. That sin must be paid for. That God will not allow injustice to go uh, unpaid. But we also see the love of God. That God loved us so much that he sent his son to die on the cross so that we might experience life. There's a show called Antiques Roadshow. We've probably all seen it on uh, PBS. Most uh, popular show ever on that station. And if you've never watched it, um, basically, you know, they have appraisers who uh, appraise different antiques, and people will bring stuff out of their basement or attic or whatever. They've uh, family heirlooms and stuff, and they bring them to a convention center or conference center, and then these appraisers would tell them how much it's worth. Uh, well, there's one particular episode that was described by Tim Chaley's in one of his books uh, where this man brought this blanket, and he thought that it might have some value, but... He didn't think it was worth very much. And so he just kind of kept it on uh, the back of his chair, uh, would use it occasionally until this uh, Antiques Roadshow came into town, and then he brought the uh, blanket there. Chalice writes this about what transpired. He said, with the blanket hanging on a rack behind him, the expert appraiser told the old man that his heart stopped when he first saw it. The appraiser explained that the item was a Navajo chief's blanket that had been woven in the 1840s. In wonderful condition, it was one of the oldest intact Navajo weaves to survive to the 21st century, and certainly one of only a tiny handful to exist outside of museum collections. Because of its rarity and significance, the appraiser had no trouble assigning a value of somewhere between $350,000 to $500,000. As the man walked out of the convention center, the blanket he had cavalierly carried in with him, he now cradled carefully in his arms. He walked out of the building with security guards on either side of him, drove straight to a bank, and placed the blanket in a safe deposit box. What had been junk, a mere accent to an old rocking chair, had been instantly transformed into a precious treasure. Chalice goes on to offer this word of connection to the word of God in Christ. He says this, When God saves his people, bringing us from death to life, he opens our eyes to love and appreciate the supreme treasure that is Jesus Christ. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 46, says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and he sells all that he has to buy that field. He says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had bought, uh, all that he had and bought it. What we value determines who or what we chase after. So the question I have for us to consider today is, what do you value? If you want to know what you value, what are you chasing after? What are you chasing after? 
The sad truth is most people in our world are not chasing after Christ. Most people in our world are chasing after whether it may be comfort, maybe it's satisfaction, maybe it's our career, maybe it's our family. There's all different things that we can be chasing after, but there's few of us who are chasing after Christ. But can we say with the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What do we value? What are we chasing after? If the answer is no, we need to look no further to the, than the cross. If the answer is no, if we don't value Christ like that, and I think if we're honest, each and every one of us at times in our life maybe could say, yeah, I'd, I don't value Christ like that. If that's the case, we need to look to the cross. Because as we look to Jesus hanging on a cross outside of Jerusalem, we see that Christ truly is valuable. As we look to the cross, that we see that Christ is like that treasure hidden in the field. He is like that pearl of grace price. And he's worth giving everything for. What we value determines who or what we chase after. So what are you chasing after today? What do you value in your heart? Is Christ your treasure? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that you are worthy of all honor and praise and glory, that you are worth everything that we could ever give you, that you are the pearl of great price. You are the treasure hidden in the field. Lord, help us to ascribe you that glory, that honor in our lives. As we're living our everyday lives, I pray that we would be chasing after you, that you would be our treasure, you would be our hope. And for those of us maybe who don't feel that, who've never felt that, Lord, today I pray that we would look to the cross, that we would look to your redemption, that we would see your love and your grace, that we would see your nail-scarred hands, your love that was shed for us, and that through that we might be changed to see you as the treasure that you are. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.